This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, a ceremony honoring Mr. Obama's inauguration, was given at Saragordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico, on January 24th, 2009. Good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be back here after my winter retreat. It's great to see you all again and to be meeting um, on such an auspicious occasion as this inauguration week. Um, inauguration is from an old Latin word, and it means um, to bring in with auguries, to do the divinations for. And um, that sort of got extended to mean to greet with proper ceremony. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to have our own small inauguration ceremony to greet properly this event that has happened. And I just want to say um, a few words kind of from the middle of it, you know, just some sort of random thoughts from the middle of it. And um, we'll be glad to hear anything you have to say, and then we'll, we'll do the ceremony. And I'll talk a little bit more about the ceremony when the, when the time comes. And there were a few things that, that in the last couple of days have really stuck out for me as being things that connect us deeply to what's happening. And there are all the obvious things, and I won't talk about those because you all already are experiencing those. But in terms of our practice, you know, in our, in our lives as meditators, there are a few things that feel quite strongly points of attachment, and I wanted to, to speak about those. The first is, uh, I think there was a law passed when nobody was looking that you're not allowed to open your mouth in public this week without quoting Dr. King, so I will quote Dr. King. <laughs> um, of, the, of the many uh, beautiful and moving things he said, one that's always meant a tremendous amount to me was uh, when he said that the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And that's always been a source of tremendous hope and consolation for me, and also matches my experience, that the arc of history, the arc of our lives as a culture, the arc of our individual lives may be long and sometimes painfully so, but it does bend toward justice. And um, certainly that was a part of what happened this week. So that's the first thing, is to remember to have this big view. Um, I, I spoke of several before I left on, on, on my uh, retreat about how uh, Mr. Obama seemed like our first Buddhist president, you know, in the same way that Bill Clinton was our first black president, as Tony Morrison said. And um, one of the things that really strikes you about him is this tremendous equanimity that he has. And I think one of the sources of that is this really big view that he has. And you watch stuff come at him, you know, and you watch him not react in the moment, not have this kind of narrow, tight, tightly wound uh, relationship to things, but this much more spacious kind of, he's sort of loping in a marathon rather than running a, um, you know, a, a hundred meter dash. So I think that's uh, tremendously important. And there's a funny kind of thing that's happening here, for me this week anyway, maybe you're having a similar experience, where there is this sense of this long thing that's happening, this big movement. And there's also a sense of it happened like that. It was just a quantum jump. We were on one ring you know, of the quantum circles, and then we were in the next ring. And everything had just instantly changed in some way. And that's really interesting to me, the way it can feel like both those things at the same time. 
And it made me remember something I hadn't thought about for a long time. Um, 30 years ago, when I was living in Southern California, I came in to make lunch for a group of um, about six little girls who were sitting around my dining room table. And I had been listening to a reading, I don't remember, some great um, conflict in the culture wars. And those of you who are old enough to remember will remember that in the 1980s, the question of whether the canon, the literary canon, ought to be opened up to people, authors from different continents and of other colors and religions and, you know, all of that was this huge matter of controversy, which seems, I don't know, it seems to me like the sort of the theological arguments of the Middle Ages now, but it was quite serious at the time. And I was um, disturbed by this, whatever this exchange I've been hearing was. And I walked in, and, and there were these six little girls sitting around the dining room table. And not only did they all have names like Columbine and Athena and Yaki, but every single one of them was mixed race in a different combination. And I looked at those little girls, and I thought, gentlemen, whether you know it or not, you have lost this war. It's over. And it may take 30 years. I can remember thinking that it may take 30 years for that to become apparent, but it will. It will become apparent. And here it is, 30 years ago, you know, vividly apparent that we have made such a profound shift um, in a moment like that. So um, another, another message for meditators is we never know the end of the story. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We can hope and fear and be anxious about and long for and all of that, but we don't know. We don't know. So can we be comfortable in that not knowing? Can we be comfortable in waiting and seeing and allowing ourselves to move in that long arc along with everything else? Um, And I was also thinking about how uh, sometimes we get it wrong and make mistakes. And um, for me, from my perspective, and this is just my view, when it was announced that um, the Reverend Rick Warren was going to give the inaugural (coughs) prayer, that really was painful. (coughs) I really struggled with that. Um, And it felt like a mistake to me. I'm not saying it was, but that's what it felt like to me. And I didn't understand it. And I think I didn't understand it because it seemed uncharacteristically unkind of Barack Obama. I experienced him as a deeply kind person. And coming right after um, the passage of Proposition 8 in California, which Reverend Warren had worked for, um, it felt unkind. And I was surprised. And um, so I was interested that in watching the inauguration on the day, how entirely inconsequential that prayer seemed. In the context of what was happening, it felt so small and insignificant. And that I took away that feeling so strongly that when I was thinking about uh, mentioning it tonight, I tried to I tried to see if I could remember anything he said, and I couldn't remember a single phrase that he uttered in that prayer. So I went back to listen to it today. Um, and really, I had, I had a, a, a feeling of someone in over his head, that the events were so much larger than he was, and that it was fine to just let that be the case. You know, 
And um, there was at one point at which he talks about, he talked in the prayer about wishing for justice and equality for all. And the tremendous hollowness of those words coming out of his mouth was just there. You know, there it was. No need to comment. And I've noticed that with a couple of exceptions like Rachel Maddow, nobody's talking about it. It, it didn't, it's not what caught people's attention. It's not what persists about the inauguration. Um, and so that was interesting to me. That, um, again, there's this sense of the view of karma that our Taoist ancestors had, which is that karma is streaming by us all the time. We are in this sea of karma. And we can choose whether to reach out and grab it or not. And I felt in myself the decision not to reach out and grab for that karma. And I felt in some ways, maybe this is a projection, but I felt in some ways in the country a decision not to reach out and grab for that karma, but to let it just be what it was and to let it have its own place and proportion. So that would be something else I would um, commend to you as meditators, is when, when, when can we not reach out? When can we just let it go by? When is that um, very skillful means with whatever's happening? Um, also to remember, that we are here because um, people were restless and they moved from country to country and they went in search of things. They were migrants and immigrants and emigrants. This tradition has moved all around the world and, and come to us here. And sometimes it was just a few people who moved it. There were about two dozen people who brought Chan um, from China so that it could become Zen in Japan. That's all, about two dozen people crossed that difficult ocean and, um, and rooted Zen in the new place. And over and over again, it's been this movement of a few people from place to place. And so I want to put a plug in for that kind of mixing, that kind of mestizo culture that's on glorious display this week in Washington, that that's important to us. The, the sense of rootedness that comes with being in a place and caring about a place and having history is tremendously important. And it's also important to have some restless people who go off in search of things and who carry new things with them and move around the world. And we've all benefited greatly by that. So um, let's hear it for border crossings and, um, and mixings it up and um, coyotes and all of those things. Who, Hermes, who crosses back and forth across the borders and makes things happen that couldn't otherwise happen. And this, um, this inauguration is an example of something that could not have happened if people hadn't been restless and hadn't wandered around and hadn't gone looking for something new, for something else. Um, and I think maybe the, the last or two things I want to say is, is um, it was one of the most powerful moments was a very small one, which was on Sunday on the concert at the Lincoln Memorial, when Mr. Obama walked up to the, the podium and the first thing he said was, welcome to Washington. And I realized that for the first time in my entire life, I felt welcome to Washington. 
you know, I really did. I felt as though there was something, something I was part of that was there and was being not just allowed even behind, you know, phalanxes of police, but was actually being welcomed onto the Lincoln Memorial. And um, that made me think of a um, something a Cuban writer said that it really, again, really changed my mind in the same way that Dr. King's words inspired me so much. Um, the Cuban writer Reynaldo Arenas, um, who you some if you don't know his writing, some of you may have seen a wonderful movie a few years ago called Before Night Falls with Javier Bardem, that was um, based on his memoir. Um, he spent a lot of time in Cuban jails for subversive writing and trying to escape the island and being gay. And uh, in one of his books called The Color of Summer, he does this great twist for me where um, I realized in reading him that I, I had always thought about myself as part of a counterculture. That what was happening in Washington, for example, that was the culture, and that was sort of going on, and it was big and monolithic and powerful, and then I and a lot of the people I knew were part of this counterculture. My whole life, I've been, I've been in the counterculture. But um, Arenas talked about how, the, the, he was talking about in the Cuban context, the, the Castro government in, in Cuba, that was what he called the counter-country. That was the counter-country. And that the the rest, you know, the, everything that was not part of that regime, that was the country. And it completely flipped it on its head for me because suddenly I thought, yeah, we're, we are the country and that is the counter country. And um, when we spoke about it, I want to get his, his adjectives right because I think he chose them with um, tremendous care. Uh, he said that the, the counter country, and, and remember that he's talking about Cuba in the 1980s, and you can see how counter countries are the same wherever they are, how whatever form they appear in, they have the same kinds of qualities. He said it was uh, superficial, monolithic, rigid, and vulgar. <laughs> Which is a great list, superficial, <laughs> monolithic, rigid, and vulgar. And, you know, without saying anything too obvious, you know, there's, there's a way in which I think we can feel a kind of shadow of that passing off of us these days. And he said, uh, the country, the rest, of, the rest of the folks, the country is all that's diverse, luminous, mysterious, and festive. <laughs> diverse, luminous, mysterious, and festive. And, um, and I thought, if we can live up, live up to diverse, luminous, mysterious, and festive, we're doing a pretty good job. And I think that that's the invitation that's being made to us, you know, that when we are welcome to Washington, that is the invitation. That so much um, that has remained underground for a long time is being invited back into the sunlight. And that's something else I want to say to us as meditators, that we don't always get the sunlit surface of things. We don't always get to walk above ground. We spend long passages of our meditation, of our lives, um, uh, of our, our cultures and our histories together, underground, walking in the dark passages. And that's okay. There's something that can happen there that can't happen in the sunlit world. And we need both. And we need that ability to move from one world to, the, to another and to bring the riches and the wisdom of one place into the other place. 
And one of the most exciting things for me right now is to look at how we step out of the dark caves, we step out of the underground places where we have as best we can in our lives, in our meditation, in our families, in our friendships, in our volunteer work, in the communities we build. We have been keeping something alive, nourishing something underground, and we're about to bring it back out into the light. And I am so excited to see what happens when, when we do, what becomes possible when we do. <clears throat> so, um, see if any of you can recognize this. You know, a couple of months ago, my meditation was so alive and so full of stuff happening, and now it's just so flat and dead. Okay? Flat and dead, that's underground. That's the work we can't see. That's the time we have to trust that what happens then is as important as when it's full of fireworks and great revelations. We have to root it. We have to make it ours. We have to assimilate it, um, integrate it, fully make it ours before we go on to the next thing. Um, so, so Norman Mailer said of, of John F. Kennedy when he was elected that he was the edge of the mystery. And it's funny to think of a politician that way now, I think, but again, I feel an invitation to do that, to, to pick up um, Arrhenius' description of us as all that's diverse, luminous, mysterious, and festive, and to think of this change that's happening in our politics as the edge of the mystery. And we don't know what's going to happen. But let's see. Let's find out. And um, how great is that? Um, and so I wanted to, to close. Um, well, someone has to this book up at work this week, but I think should be, which is Langston Hughes, um, the poet of, of the Harlem Renaissance. And he wrote a great poem, which many of you know, called Let America Be America. And he was writing in the depression, writing you know from the depths of that of that great difficulty. And he he was talking about how for him as an African American, all this stuff about let America be American again had a kind of edge to it because America had never really been America for him yet. You know, it hadn't been what it had promised to be. And so he begins the poem: Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where it is free. And then he says in parentheses, America never was America to me. And he goes on and he does a kind of litany of the ways in which there's the, the ideal of America and the way in which it's fallen short for many people. And then towards the end of the poem he says, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. Let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be, the land where everyone is free. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. When did you write that in? The, uh, um, during the Depression of the 30s. So... Um, I will I will close there and would be glad to hear any comments.
really struck by um, that image of uh, Carl shooting by, <coughs> much later Carl shooting by, and the notion of not reaching out to take hold of the native part. <coughs> so, and if we've just made this quantum that never occurred to me to hold it quite that way. But I think that's really what's happened. I mean, we're all in a state of dislocation, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, from a practice standpoint, what does that mean to take hold of positive karma? I mean, we're not just sitting back and waiting for the same story ends, right? Because we're all called to participate. Right. Um, <laughs> and hopefully, believing in the all the many positive possibilities. But so what does that really mean to take hold of like a positive karma, especially if you're in an altered state? Yeah. Yeah. Well I have a kind of really simple provisional answer but for for like this moment, you know. Um, I, I, one of the comments I was translating over the, the break was one uh, that was quite poignant to me about a, a teacher who was um, literally on his deathbed with no successors. And so he sort of crawls into the hall one last time, you know, and says, I want to ask you about something, please, can someone answer me? And people give some kind of light answers and he crawls back to his room. And then he calls one of the monks to him later that night and, and he says, um, you know, there was something in what you said today. There was a little bit of a, there was a root of something true in what you said. Can we, can we keep going with that? Can we keep trying with that? And, and the monk says, I got nothing, you know, I got nothing else. And he said, I, he said, I don't care, just some, give me something. Let's see what we can do with it. And he said, really, I don't, I can't say anything to you. I have nothing to say. It's not complete in me. And the teacher roars, I don't care if it's not complete. Give me what you have. And, and that, that's my answer for right now. It doesn't matter whether it's complete or we are perfected. Or, you know, we know where it's, what it's going to be like five yards or eight years down the road. What do we have now? What do we have now? Let's start there and see what can happen. So that's my most immediate answer. Bring your glorious incompleteness. Let us each bring our glorious incompletenesses and see what happens when we put them all together. I was struck by the, when I was looking at the sea of people. You know, it was, they were so teeny, and it was just so exciting to see that. And then when Obama came up, he was just as big as, you know, he was just as small as everybody else. And I thought to myself, it just, that really struck me. Like, he's just one of us. And look, you know, look like one person did. I really got that. And it, it just really inspired me to, to never think that, you know, we don't have a way of doing whatever, in a sense. And then I just wanted to say, it's just, um, I've been feeling just change, you know, just a really feeling lots of change, just like bubbling in people that I've been talking to and um, experiencing. And um, like today, just today, at home, just minding my own business, and um, my sister called. She's a real devout Christian, and she only wants to talk about God. He's a man, and 
were sinners and all this stuff. And I don't talk to her about religion anymore because of that reason. But she called me. She's very enthusiastic about going to the dentist. And the dentist was speaking about Scientology and past lives and how illnesses are created by emotion and all this stuff. And I was just blown away. Then she started to ask me about Buddhism. And she was completely like open to all these topics. And I was like, wow. I, I just really couldn't believe it. And then I hung up and I was like, just taken by it. I thought, this is really, this is really happening. And then half an hour later, my mother calls. <laughs> she wants to apologize <clears throat> for leaving me at the shopping mall when I was four. <laughs> <laughs> and does. I couldn't believe it. That's crazy. It was so weird. So anyway, I just, like, you're probably just going, I have something to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or what are you saying? Or, you know, there's kind of an exchange going on. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Anything else that must be said before we do the ceremony? So here's how it's going to go. We're going to begin with our traditional, the traditional Zen purification chant. And um, it's just a one note mantra. It's not the sun version that some of you are familiar with, and the words are just a little bit different. Um, And the sense here is that this is this is happening to all of us. This is not happening somewhere else among other people. This is happening to all of us. So let all of us <coughs> let us accept the karma for what has happened in our country. And then we're going to have a chance to um, to put things down. So if there are things that have happened that we wish at this point to firmly and deliberately put down, we will not do this anymore, then you'll have a chance to speak that. And if you would just, if you want to, just, you don't have to, but just speak it loudly and speak kind of one after the other, not, not around the room, but just so that, so that Piper can ring the bell after each person speaks, so that if you want to put down, you know, the destruction of civil rights, or whatever it is, and, you know, that the bell will ring and the next person can speak. And we'll just do that until it's exhausted, until we put everything down. We want to put down. And then there will be a matter of what we want to pick up, what we want, what we hope for, what our aspirations are. And we'll begin with the third verse of the, um, what's usually thought of as my country, Tisithi. And the third verse is just incredibly beautiful. So we'll just sing that three times. And um, we'll, we'll then offer incense. Um, we'll pass sticks of incense around, and then the pot will go around. We won't light it in case anybody's um, sensitive to it. But when we're done, when the pot is full, we'll take it outside and light it outside. And um, if you want to, as the, as the pot comes around to you, you put the incense in. If you want to say out loud what, you, what, what you're offering the incense for, what your aspiration or prayer or hope is, you can do that. And if you don't want to, you can just pass the pot. And then we will close um, by doing something that's similar to what we do on New Year's. On New Year's, we toll the bell 108 times, um, which is a very old tradition. 
And tonight we will toll it 44 times for the 44th President of the United States. And Piper will begin and keep count. And if you want to um, toll the bell, just go up to the bell and she'll give you the, the striking to do that. Okay. Yeah, I have two. When we speak the, the putting down part, do we do it one at a time or do we do it random? It's random, but just don't let, let, let each thing be out there by itself and then the next thing and the next thing so we can really hear what it is we're putting down. Thank uh-huh. 
are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.